Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Peter Lawrence and I'll be in the hot seat today. According to our partners Break, the National Road Safety Charity, someone is injured on a UK road every four minutes. This highlights the important role each and every one of us has to play in keeping the roads safe. That very subject is going to be the discussion of today's podcast. As you record this during Road Safety Week, we'll reflect upon the impact that a road traffic collision can have on your life and how they can be prevented as the dark nights draw in and the winter weather arrives. We'll also discuss the current lockdown, the increase in cycling, and the worrying trend that police report a 71% spike in speeding during the previous national lockdown. To do all this, I am delighted to be joined by three special guests. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Michael Anderson, a client of ours who suffered life-changing injuries, including amputation of his left leg and a bleed on the brain after a road traffic collision in a blizzard back in 2018. Joining him is Traffic Sergeant Paul Cording from the North Yorkshire Police Force. Paul has years of experience of road traffic policing and has had to attend far too many fatal and serious injury incidents whilst doing his job. And last, but certainly not least, is fellow Owen Mitchell colleague and paralegal, Phil King. Prior to joining us, Phil served with Northumbria Police for over 33 years as a family liaison coordinator and lead investigator into serious road traffic collisions. Michael, I'd like to come to you first, if that's okay. Could you please tell us what happened on that afternoon in March a few years ago, which, for all the wrong reasons, you'll never forget? Yes, Peter, I can. Um, what was happening was um, me, myself and my partner were um, on our way to hospital to visit my daughter who had had complications giving birth. It had been snowing that afternoon, but not very much. It was it was okay to drive. As we were driving, though, we were, came across a, a police vehicle and um, a police officer flagged us down and asked us to be careful as we were driving because there was blizzards blowing across the roads in certain places uh, to keep to the right and keep to the track. So as far as I can remember, I, I drove through two blizzards, which weren't too bad, but then the, the next one I came to where the accident occurred, you could basically hardly see in front of you. As I remember, it was... Um, I was probably driving around about walking pace uh, before I came to a stop because uh, there was lights in front of me. You thought vehicles were going to hit you. So <clears throat> we became stuck. A vehicle actually came from behind and just hit the rear of my vehicle on the driver's side corner. He was unlucky to hit us, but um, obviously he did. So I gave him a hand to take his car out of the snow and push him on. And I said, well, we'll exchange details when we get the other side of the blizzard. And what I remember there then is trying to move my car, which wouldn't move because it was stuck in a drift. So I had to get a shovel out and shovel the car. Still, it still wouldn't move. So I got my partner, Donna, to drive while I went round back to push. And that's as much as I remember, basically just probably walking to the rear of the car. So you described getting out of your car and then the next thing you remember was waking up in hospital. Can you recall being told what had happened to you? Yes, Peter, um, things were a bit fuzzy, but I remember them being told by the surgeon that he had to um, he had to take my left leg above the knee as it was that badly um, damaged. And later on, I learned from my partner, Donna, that um, I'd been struck by a vehicle that had been traveling too fast for the conditions and I'd been struck at about roughly about 40 miles per hour in the blizzard, which at the time I thought, well, I couldn't even see very far in front of us when I was driving. So it was basically quite a life-changing moment, learning that I wasn't going to be walking anymore, and but I was just happy to be alive, to be honest with you. So, Paul, coming to you, um, the situation that Michael's described is exactly the sort of situation that you deal with in your role. 
Yeah, as a roads policing officer, roads policing sergeant, one of my main role is overseeing serious uh, life-changing and fatal road traffic collisions. And there are hundreds of collisions that, that go on around the country every day. And it's a sobering thought and a reminder to us all that every time we attend a collision, uh, it affects so many people. So that one collision that Michael's explained there has affected himself and his partner, Donna, who were there at the scene, all the other people that were there. But then you've got the emergency services, the people in the hospital, any witnesses and stuff like that. So it really is quite a sobering um, thought and it's sort of like a, a leveller, really, to remind us why we do our role and why we try to do our very best for people. So, Paul, can you describe what it's like to deal with incidents like this and what goes through your mind when you receive the call? Yeah, it's a strange one because it can happen at any time of the day or night. Obviously, we provide 24-7 cover and it can be the very first thing when you come on duty in the morning. It can be in the middle of the day. It can be in the middle of the night and you never know where or when that next call is going to be. So it's intermingled with your your daily work of uh, promoting road safety and uh, dealing with drivers on the road. So in North Yorkshire as well, we're such a vast county. We've got 6,000 miles of roads and only a small dedicated road policing team. But when you get that call, you know straight away, um, generally, if there's going to be a fatal or life-changing collision. And I'm sure the others would, would agree, you, you go into work mode, because although you might be miles away, it's down to you as the sort of like senior investigating officer or, or lead investigator to make sure all the correct decisions are made. And even whilst travelling to the scene, you've got decisions that are being made in that what we call the golden hour. Now, for those who aren't familiar, can you talk us through the importance and the meaning of the Golden Hour? Yeah, it's twofold, really. One, from a, a medical point of view, obviously, they, they say that if you can get to somebody and treat them, get them to trauma units within that period, then their, their chance of surviving, firstly, and having the, the minimum amount of injuries is, is increased. As I said, we're in a rural force, so things like the Yorkshire Ambulance, the Great North Air Ambulance, absolutely fantastic assets to have and I know they're charities but uh, they do do some some fantastic work for for us and I'm sure for, for your clients as well but it's about making those really quick decisions so first of all and in every case your number one priority is the preservation of life and if you've got colleagues there you need to make sure that they are doing the very best they can whilst also taking into account that their safety is paramount as well it's no good them trying to do life-saving work on somebody in the middle of a, a road if they're not looking after themselves and then they become a victim as well. Phil, coming to you, um, I guess you've had uh, experience on both sides of these incidents dealing with the immediate aftermath as well as working with clients and their families in trying to rebuild their lives after these incidents. Yeah, it, it's it's quite strange. Whilst uh, serving with the Northumbria Police, uh, I did 20 years in the role as uh, roads policing sergeant, dealing with numerous fatal and serious uh, injury road traffic collisions. Since coming to Irwin Mitchell, I've been with the firm nearly 10 years now, and um, it's more focused on dealing with the families because whilst you're in the police, you've got that side to deal with in relation to submission of paperwork, etc., and uh, getting cases to court or um, to the coroner. Well, 
whilst Dido and Mitchell were, were dealing more with the client and the, and the actual victim of the uh, collision. And it's quite sobering when you see the effects of um, the long-term effects, not just short-term, uh, of the effects of a road traffic collision on, a, on an individual and the family. Um, because I'm sure uh, Michael will probably relate to this. It hasn't. It obviously has affected Michael greatly, but it's affected his family life as well. Because your family have to assist you and change their lifestyle really to to uh, come to terms with the injury that you've suffered. So it's a, it's a very sobering area, I think. Thank you for that. Now, so the theme this year's Road Safety Week is no need to speed, centering on why is speeding so dangerous? Because I think we're seeing a huge prevalence of speeding generally. Um, before lockdown, there were figures um, I was reading about on motorways, for instance, 48% of cars exceed, exceeding the speed limit during weekdays, rising to 55% of weekends, and that's on a motorway. And then on 30 mile an hour limit roads, that was 52% on weekdays and 59% of weekends. So there are two different spectrums of speeds involved here. But aside from safety, obvious, why is that so dangerous? I think in relation to speed, I would add the word inappropriate, because certainly if you're doing, I'm not naive enough to know that people don't travel in excess of the speed limit on the motorway. But if you're doing 10 mile an hour more on the motorway, and you're doing 10 mile an hour more in a residential area where there might be children, there might be elderly people around uh, what I would class as vulnerable road users, then that's the area that I uh, my team concentrate more on because they're the they're the areas we're going to see more devastation if you like i think there's some statistics that say that if you travel at 35 miles an hour you're twice as likely to kill somebody as if you were traveling at 30 miles an hour so um, particularly when you've got vulnerable road users about it's certainly something that my team and myself uh, look on heavily in conjunction with the other assets that we have around the force such as the safety camera vans the neighborhood policing teams we also try and put the onus to touch on the community itself we have a number of what we call community speed watch uh, groups uh, within villages around North Yorkshire. And they're a real sort of like bonus to have because you're empowering the local community to, to take some of the issues into sort of like be accountable for them. And I guess that's that's the fundamental issue. Because um, I saw some statistics earlier this year where I think it was 86% of drivers were estimated to be exceeding a 20 mile an hour speed limit. And from my purely anecdotal experience of living in London, I cycle in London most days, and that's in spite of lockdown, purely for exercise purposes alone. Um, but I will be riding around 15, 18, perhaps 20 miles an hour. And frequently I have cars going past me at high speeds. Is there an issue with enforcement in actually guarding against this because there doesn't seem to be a great deal of voluntary compliance. My personal opinion is when the 20 mile an hour speed limits were brought in to a degree, the plan was for them to be self-enforcing. Now, whether that was with speed calming measures such as um, chicanes or speed bumps, etc., is questionable now. But certainly, I think there is definitely more of a push, particularly around um, schools and shops, etc., where you've, you've got a higher risk, if you like, then we are looking at more and more of these 20 mile an hour zones being put in place. And at the end of the day, it is there for everybody's safety. And it's to ensure that the numbers of people that are killed and seriously injured in our roads are diminishing. And Phil, in, in your experience, in, in I say from your experience historically with Northumbria Police, as well as more recently with uh, Mitchell, have you found inappropriate speeds to be a major contributing factor to the incidents you've dealt with? Uh, in certain circumstances, a bit like uh, as Paul said there, 
not not every collision involves excess speed. Uh, can be down to driver error or very rarely mechanical defect. But speed is a, is a factor. There's no two ways about it in relation to certainly in, ur- in an urban situation where drivers don't adhere to the 20 miles an hour limit. But also, I think Paul might be able to um, give some more information here. But certainly when I worked in Northumbria, Northumbria is split between two counties, basically Tyne and Weir, which is an urban conurbation. In Northumberland County, which is very very rural, very similar to North Yorkshire. And the, the problems with the, uh, the rural area is, is um, sometimes it's um, the confidence of drivers. They're they're driving local roads all the time, so they they become very confident with the road that they're on, but not really reading the road and watching out for hazards. So instead of on de-restricted roads sticking to 60 miles an hour, they will go beyond 60 miles an hour. And then there's a situation when they come from a de-restricted zone into a 30 zone or even a 20 zone when they uh, come into a village setting, they don't always adhere to uh, the speed limit. And that's a situation. And, and mainly in Northumberland County, it was normally high-speed collisions on rural roads, which were, which were the big issue. And in those cases, uh, speed was a factor, but also you had other... Um, factors in relation to drugs or, or drink. It depends on the time of day when, when they occurred. Now, Michael, coming to you, um, your life has been changed irreparably as a result of the incident you described to us earlier. Now, can you talk us through the impact that that's had on your life? Yes, I can, Peter. It's had a great impact. Um, firstly, I haven't been able to work for the last two and a half years or more, um, obviously due to my ongoing um, surgeries that I've had and and also problems with me with my uh, head injury. Impact, like you say earlier, was that with the family as well. The family have to um, adjust to accommodate. I was working in um, Scotland and I had a flat in Scotland, which basically after a year I gave up because it was basically no good was with the stairs it was a first floor flat I moved in with my parents so you can understand when you're moving back in with your parents at the age of 48 it's uh, it can be quite testing both sides also uh, what I found very hard was unable to just get up and do things I've got to plan things now everything I want to do with basically my granddaughter would be sitting on the floor and I couldn't just get up and go and play with her you have to wear uh, four or five steps to get up and be able to get on the floor and what have you. I couldn't, when she was learning to walk, I was unable to walk with her. So I just had to stand by and watch everybody else doing that, which was hard. So yes, it's quite, it's every every day can be different. It just depended on what you what you plan on doing for getting about, wheelchairs, crutches, you've got to plan getting in and out of the car with all your, all your equipment. Whereas Benny, other time you would just jump in your car and be away. I guess you've lost all sorts of spontaneity in some ways. You can't just turn up to a restaurant and hope for the best and be able to get into it without suddenly discovering a flight of stairs or something like that that can scuffle your plans. That's true. It's everywhere now, which you've got to find a lift. If you're going somewhere, is there a lift there? What I found a lot of shops is um, a lot of people don't see you when you're in a wheelchair. You, you seem, seem to become invisible, so it's just getting around shops can be quite hard. But like you see, yes, it's... Um, when you're getting about on a wheelchair, you've got to think of, think ahead, which is hard to get used to when you've not been used to it. I mean, maybe you don't do it sometimes, maybe you don't think, and then it's when you actually get somewhere, you think, oh, well, this is no good because uh, I didn't think of this. I need my crutches or I've only got my wheelchair. And it's been uh, it's been quite hard sometimes. It can, it can dull your mood quite a bit. Is that entirely understandable there? Have, have you, I guess the joy of grandchildren, I imagine, is that they're very understanding and they don't really question it. They just take things and just find you. Is it you, 
as their grandfather. So my granddaughter was um, she was only a week old when I had the accident. So she's uh, she's only ever known as without a leg. But um, as I've just got um, a leg uh, now, um, which is funded by the uh, my claim, it's uh, she's completely different because she's talking now when she actually says, "Well, where's Granda's leg? He's got his leg back." Because I told her that I told her it was taken away by a helicopter. So she always knew that it. She always knew that my leg had fallen off and it had been taken away by a helicopter. So I said to her, "Have you have you ever do you seen the helicopter that's got my leg?" And she would say, "No, Granda." Not yet, haven't seen it. But now she's actually seen us with a leg. I'm actually able to go now and actually pick her up from standing, which I was never able to do before. So she she does she mentions my leg now quite a bit. And has um have you worked hard with your rehabilitation to get you to that point to be able to have the new leg and to be able to work? Because a lot of work's required to, to develop the strength and the resilience to be able to and learning how to use that new limb. That's right. Um I've had lots and lots of rehab. Um not just for my for my limb, I've had it for me for my my, my head injury. Yes, I've been going to the gym for because I had to get my strength back because after two more or less two years of um, not really being able to do much. It was getting my fitness back, uh, which hasn't been really helped by these lockdowns with the COVID-19 because I did get myself an NHS leg, which I was starting to uh, practice on, walk on and... And then we had the lockdown, so it was. It's been in the hospital ever since, and I've just um, managed to get appointments now to start using that again. I've, I've refitted. I've also had um, a leg funded, private leg funded by the case, which I just received and got to him. So I was away in rehab for three weeks in Sheffield to uh, learn to use the leg, have it fitted, and try and build up my fitness a lot better. So that was a leg intensive three weeks. Definitely worth it. And I have my leg home now, so I go to the gym three days a week where I'm taking my leg with us and obviously practising a lot. And I think the main thing is getting the fitness back up. I think with a lot of people that have had a, over these few months have put a few extra pounds on as well. And the best thing for me is, is I've probably put on three stone since my accident. Uh, so it's a three stone extra to carry around on a, a leg, which is probably... I'd be better off getting that weight back off and make things a lot easier for myself. That's a real impact on a number of clients of mine where a number who attend specialist um, gyms and physiotherapists, which are geared up for people who suffered similar injuries to you, Michael. And the difficulty is through lockdown, they've been closed, or they've got additional measures in place, which is restricting their access. And some are being directed to do exercises from home via video links, which is a great use of technology to enable people to continue with their rehabilitation, but it is still having an impact. People aren't able to have the hands-on input. And especially if you're learning to use a new limb, for example, then there is a hands-on element to that. And that really has going to have an impact on your ability to progress with your rehabilitation. But it sounds like you've done some phenomenal work so far. And frankly, from my experience with rehabilitation, there is no real plateau to that. It's a continuing ongoing relationship where with continued work, especially with neuro rehabilitation, a few people who have suffered a brain injury, with the continued work with the right team around them, it's amazing the progress that can be made. But lockdown is certainly making that much more difficult than it would have been ordinarily. Going back to what Paul said in relation to pedestrian RTCs, I dealt with one since coming to Owen Mitchell, which was a 12-year-old boy who was um, knocked over 
uh, in a line of traffic. He was crossing a road uh, near a big superstore where uh, he wasn't from the area, so was, the road layout was different. So he didn't know the flow of traffic. And he thought that there was a lane of stationary traffic. He crossed in front of that stationary line. And then, unfortunately for him, a vehicle traveling on the near side of that lane um, sadly uh, knocked him over. And um, he had a catastrophic brain injury at the time. Now, that young boy, because of the early rehabilitation, his recovery has been amazing, and he's he, this. He's he's now 18 years old. He's now a football coach. He's done really well. But it, it's all done a bit like Michael. Michael's attitude is amazing. I've met Michael in person, um, and uh, his resilience and his personality are fantastic because he's literally taken on the issue in such a positive manner and uh, and actually focused all his energies to getting better and keep maintaining a real positive mental uh, attitude. And 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 very similar. Um, this young lad I'm talking about did did. Exactly Exactly the same. He, he had goals. He maintained them. Like everything, he, he had his, his stumblings. He had one or two little setbacks. But on the whole, um, he's done really well with his rehab. But what kept us going basically was my family being able to see my granddaughters or my granddaughter at the time, and uh, just my family was was actually quite lucky. Never mind lose my leg and. All the other injuries I had, I was lucky to be alive uh, after the accident. And basically what I said was, right, I've lost my leg. I basically said, just got to get on with it. I've got to get on with it. If I don't, just don't give it up. Just got to wear, do, do my hardest for everybody else, for my family as well. And don't want them struggling on after us, having to look after me. Look after me. I wanted to be able to, well, I want to be able to look after myself fully. And did you have any goals in terms of your hobbies, activities? Back to driving. I was I was driving um, uh, about a year or so after the accident. Um, but my blood and my interests have been in cars, motoring, motorsport. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to doing maybe a few track days and whatever. Um, with the with cars, not motorcycles. But we'll just see how it goes. Basically, you just got to take one day at a time. Absolutely. And actually, for the motorcycling perspective, from a, my own client's experience of mine, where he was, he suffered a spinal cord injury, he was paralyzed from the chest down. And in that case, we were able to um, put together a package where we're actually identified all the adaptations and modifications to his motorcycle. So despite of being paralyzed from the chest down, he's still able to ride a bike, he's able to do track days, he needed a little team to help him basically launch him and catch him because he couldn't put his foot down to balance the bike, but he was able to get back out there with full hand controls to work. It's a really ingenious system. So if you've got the details, we'll, we'll pass them over to you because there are amazing modifications that can be done. So we've talked about speed being a factor, for instance, whether that is speeding or inappropriate speed for circumstances. But in your experiences, both Phil and Paul here, are there other factors that are a contributing factor to collisions occurring? We uh, in the police deal with what we call the fatal four as the most uh, contributory factors to killed and seriously injured. Uh, and you mentioned inappropriate speed already. And the other three we target are drink and drug driving, the wearing of seatbelts and also mobile phones and other distractions. So coming back to seatbelts first, if you like, if you with the advancement in car technology, the safest place to be if you're involved in a collision is inside the cockpit of that car. Because nowadays you've got crumple zones, airbags, siding protection, etc. So if you are involved in a collision, then the safest place is to be within that in that cockpit, which is why we we target them so much. Uh, some people think it's okay not to wear seatbelts. There are obviously a 
few exemptions, but again, even if I had an exemption, I don't think I'd, I'd drive around without a seatbelt on. Huge one with the advancement of technology is mobile phones and other distractions. And I know they are looking at um, changing the law because there are loopholes in it. I mean, the current legislation was brought about in 2003, which is when you could probably just make a phone call and text from your phone. But people live on them nowadays. You only have to look around when you're you're in a town centre or whatever, and you see people walking around with their head down, bumping into people. So that FOMO, the fear of missing out, people are just on their phone all the time. Uh, and then obviously, drink and drug driving. I think the drink driving laws were about 1967 when they came out. Um, and drug driving has become much, much more prevalent, particularly since 2015 when the legislation was changed um, by what they call Lillian's law, if you like. Uh, Lillian Groves was killed by a, a, a drug driver um, and her family campaigned massively and brought about the change in the legislation in 2015. And we are seeing huge, huge numbers of people um, that are being arrested for drug driving. My last two nights, just, I had a couple of uh, drug drivers in. So frustratingly, with drink drivers, you can get the result at the police station there and then you can charge them to court. But because you need a blood sample for the drugs to be analysed, it's taking upwards of three, four months. So you've still got people driving around because in this country, innocent till proven guilty, although they've shown a propensity to drive with the drugs in their system, uh, albeit you don't know the levels. But yeah, you've still got people driving around four or five months later because they haven't been to court yet. So before we target inappropriate speed, drink drug driving, mobile phones and other distractions and seatbelts. I think the interesting thing with mobile phones, especially when you talk about people on the streets always being glued to them and watching them and that whole FOMO element there. But I think it's interesting. You see a lot of campaigning online, um, so especially on Twitter. There's a couple of campaigners who basically capture drivers sitting there in queues of traffic using their mobile phones and then reporting them into the various websites where the police will accept video evidence of drivers doing that. And there's a real misconception that if you're sat in a queue of traffic, mucking around on your phone is perfectly safe because you're not driving per se. I think the real issue there is you're not paying attention to what's going on around you. You're suddenly going to look up, you realise the lights change and you put your foot down without ever once checking to see if it's safe to proceed. And I think from an anecdotal basis only, it seems there's a real misconception that actually using your phone while safe in the queue is safe to do so. In actual fact, you are putting a lot of people at risk because frankly, you're in control of a vehicle and you're not paying attention to the road around you. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and that's sometimes with the current legislation when we have to look at other options such as um, careless or dangerous driving or not being in proper control of your vehicle. Without boring you too much, the law states that if you are in charge of the steering and propulsion of your vehicle, then you are driving. So the fact that you are at the traffic light, even though you're stationary, you are still driving. Uh, and I'm sure you guys have seen it as, as well as I have, particularly when I'm off duty, frustratingly, you'd be walking up the street and you'll just see a queue of traffic with most people with their, their head down or crotch callers, as we call them, because they're just they're not paying attention to the road. And I guess that does bring us on to, and it's saying that we've all got experience of, I'm sure, of people who are, it's not necessarily egregious speeding, it is momentary inattention. It's that loss of concentration where you might well be traveling at a perfectly reasonable speed, but you fail to look properly. You've looked once, you've not looked again when you're doing a manoeuvre. You've done something where that momentary inattention where you haven't quite looked properly or you've looked but you haven't seen does result in catastrophic consequences. So even though you may well be travelling at a very low speed, you may well, through that momentary inattention, cause a catastrophic incident with life-changing impact on the individual or the, that person's family. Is that something you both have seen through your work? 
Yeah, I, I think I'm, I mentioned it previously. Most people in this country of an age are drivers and don't go out in their car to specifically cause a collision. Whereas if you look at other criminal sides, if you like, burglars, robbers, they go out with the intention of doing something bad. Whereas if you're in a car, you go out with the intention of starting at point A and getting to point B without having any problems. But as you say, that momentary lapse in concentration, that one thing that you didn't see could result, as you say, in such a catastrophic incident, as we heard from Michael earlier, then that has such a devastating effect on so many people. With winter approaching, I say, frankly, the weather's been pretty awful. We've had some pretty severe rainstorms. There's plenty of leaves on the roads. Conditions, frankly, are not great from a cycling perspective. The roads are slick, they're greasy, and visibility is poor. I was out for a ride the other day, and I went through one particularly hilly element in, in Surrey, where what had been a quite a bright sunny day wound up one hill, and suddenly found myself enveloped in low-lying cloud. Visibility was down to about 150 yards, and I was just very pleased that day that, actually as all days for, for that matter, I had lights on my bike that were on, so I was visible and there to be seen. But there is also a mutual element there where drivers and all road users, they've all got responsibility to each other to look out for those people who you may not have planned ahead quite as well as you could have, but need to ensure that you are alert to those people who aren't necessarily being as visible as ideal, that a cyclist may not be illuminated in bright yellow clothing, but might well have just gone out for a ride, not necessarily anticipated and changing the conditions. And that especially with the, with the potency of driving a car or a truck or any other vehicle, then you place a real danger to those other people, other road users who are that much more vulnerable, who may not have got the same precautions behind them, who may not be as alert, but conversely, they're not in dangerous vehicles who do pose a tremendous risk to others on the roads. If you look at how legislation works, if you've got a vehicle that's over three years old, you have to get that vehicle checked uh, every year to make sure it's, its MOT is right and make sure it's roadworthy. So what happens when you're one day over 17 years old and you take your car test? When's the next time you have any kind of test to check that you are fit to drive on the road? You don't. And for example, you could be driving 10 years and not have a collision. But within that 10 years, your standard of driving may have deteriorated very, very slightly. But over the years, those 10 years, it's got worse and worse and worse before you have that catastrophic moment. So the, it's, it's a real talking point, but there is nothing apart from HGV drivers, etc. There is nothing in legislation, in law to say once you've passed your test, you, you don't have to do anything until you're 70, 75. And that's something that we're mindful of. I don't know if you're aware, but there's a there's been a recent consultation on revising the highway code. And Phil and I, together with a couple of other colleagues, were working on the uh, Mitchell response to that consultation. And there's some really valid elements in there, some really good proposals, such as a hierarchy of road users. So those who pose the greatest risk bear the greatest responsibility. But it's a phenomenal piece of work to put together. We support fundamentally the changes proposed. But our principal concern is the messaging. How often do people, other than people like us, who reads the highway code regularly? It's a pretty small cohort. And so the real difficulty is, is whilst these changes could well be made, people aren't out there ensuring that they are aware of the rules of the road. And there are some real misconceptions, for example, at junctions where pedestrians are stepping out. Who has priority? The average road driver will just carry on through, assuming that that is their absolute right of way. There are some real concerns about where people have priority and where, what the rules are. And it's the same, again, from a cycling perspective. There'll be places where drivers will yell, hoot, swear at me for being in a certain place, saying, well, I'm not entitled to be there. But actually, entirely, I am entirely entitled to be there. And that is a real concern that, frankly, yeah, people aren't aware of the rules. There is no ongoing training and supervision to ensure standards are maintained. Uh, I would agree with you there. And particularly, you mentioned about the cycling 
since the Tour de France, Le Grand Depart in Yorkshire in 2014, and historically now the, the Tour de Yorkshire every year pre-lockdown, we've seen a massive increase. We've got some fantastic roads in North Yorkshire, but um, attitudes to uh, certain groups of road users are poor be that uh, motorcyclists, be it cyclists, be it horse riders, pedestrians. But unfortunately, you do have a very, very small minority of people that give others a bad name. But then conversely, you get the other people that say, well, all cyclists are this or all motorcyclists ride like idiots and stuff like that. So it's really difficult to to try and challenge people's attitudes towards a group of road users when theoretically we should all be taking our own responsibility to make sure we're safe on the road. We're 2020, it's been a year like no other. Um, since the first lockdown, and now we're in the lockdown second time round, what has been the impact from your experience, Paul, on the roads? Has there been um, an increase or decrease in incidents? And uh, what's your experience of behaviours on our roads? Uh, from a killed and seriously injured perspective, we are above where we were last year, um, which is surprising, you might say, because there's been less traffic on the road, certainly in the first lockdown. I'll be honest with you, I've not noticed in this second lockdown a massive difference in the amount of traffic on the road. Certainly the first one there was, it went from being normal traffic to nothing on the road but then that brought its own problems with it because less traffic on the road meant more people were using it inappropriately we were getting some very very high speeders we actually got criticized to a degree for deploying our safety camera vans during the first closure and whilst we did move them some of them around to help with logistics for deploying ppe to to offices and stuff around the county uh, it was pretty evident that we needed to reutilize them for their primary function because otherwise our roads were just going to become like a racetrack and it was people like myself and then companies like yours that were going to have to pick up the pieces so we did see a bit of a, a an increase in high-end speeders to start with and then it sort of leveled off a bit but then you've got the the lockdown ended and you've got people that were getting back in their cars that hadn't driven for a month were they fit to drive had their skills dropped had their ability dropped were their cars roadworthy having just been sat there for a month so again different problems and as you say 2020 has been a year like no other it's still ongoing so all very well having your vehicle fit and roadworthy but are you fit and roadworthy as well did you have a couple of drinks last night? Did you um, not sleep very well? Are you going on a long journey? Do you need to stop? Are you close to the end of your journey? Think, oh, you know what? I'm nearly there now. I'll just keep pushing on. And that's a period when you nod off or for a microsecond and the next minute, you're either into the hard shoulder, central reservation or an oncoming car. So it's about making those right decisions and to keep everybody safe on the road. I guess that's an added concern with, I say, you talk about the rustiness of drivers and getting back out on the roads when perhaps people aren't as familiar with driving as much as they are or people are actually turning to their cars for journeys that they never would have taken before because they would have relied on public transport and now don't feel safe to do so and we've seen a huge increase with people turning to cycling or walking instead of using public transport because one or well, capacity is down so there aren't as many buses or trains available due to social distancing measures um, or simply people don't feel comfortable to do so is that concern that there's going to be more people especially kids especially we're seeing this a lot in london where we're seeing a lot of kids out trying to cycle or walk to school yeah we're also seeing a quite a high prevalence of an increase in speeding is that a concern for you paul 
our infrastructure, our road network isn't built for it. It never has been. You look at somewhere like the Netherlands where their whole infrastructure is geared around cycling and protecting cyclists. And when you do your driving test, it's all about uh, who has priority and stuff like that. Obviously, it's very flat in the Netherlands. It'd be no good for Yorkshire. But um, we're encouraging people to get out and about on their bikes and do exercise and, and things like that. But I'm not entirely convinced that the infrastructure is in place. And I know some councils are working towards making some of the green spaces more accessible, but we're not there yet, definitely. I certainly share that concern that we don't have the infrastructure in place. Um, I think the difficulty is, is that there's a real perception issue where people, if they don't feel safe to ride, frankly, they won't. We did, some, we did a YouGov survey earlier in the year, and it did reveal the key barriers Cycling were safety and being able to be segregated from the traffic. And you're right, our roads aren't fit for people to cycle on necessarily. I, I can't even envisage my son getting out on a bicycle and riding to school from where we live. It just simply is not safe enough. So through the jobs that we all do and the situations you've all been in and seeing the devastating impact that road traffic collisions can have on individuals and those around them, what one piece of advice based on that experience would you give? I think it's it's about um, your preparation to be alert and be prepared for whatever journey you're going to take, whether that's as a driver, a cyclist, or a pedestrian. You know, you know, have safety in your in the foremost part of your mind in relation to how you're going to use the road, and that could be that could be preparation of your vehicle. Make sure that you're not fatigued. That you're not, you haven't taken any substances or prescription drugs, and if you're a cyclist, high vis clothing in the winter, uh, appropriate lighting, uh, and the same goes for a pedestrian. If you're on a darkened road, make sure you're wearing something bright and can be visible. I think from my point of view, I'd probably use the word respect. So respect your own ability, the ability of your vehicle, and respect other road users. People will have different opinions about who should be on the road and who can be on the road. But at the end of the day, everybody is entitled to be on the road. And it's about making sure that you respect what their vehicle or their horse, their cycle, their motorbike can do and um, preparing for what they might do next. So if you're passing a horse, make sure you, you pass it nice and wide because they can get spooked. If you're passing a cyclist, do it nice and wide because you don't know if there's going to be a pothole or something in front of them. Uh, and say respect everybody on the road because at the end of the day certainly I've seen the devastation that uh, road traffic collisions can have on people we've heard from Michael just how it affects an individual their family their friends etc so um, it's about looking after yourself and each other thank you for that now let's come to the end of what's been a really interesting valuable discussion with some really helpful thought-provoking discussion points there and that's it for today Thank you all for joining us today and thank you for listening to the Irwin Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Stay safe.